It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Princess Bride is over. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Grandfather's here. Can't you tell me I'm sick? I'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how was the sickie? Huh? I brought you a special present. What is it? It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. It was a time when life didn't seem so complicated. Marriage is what brings us together today. What? 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 I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? A courtly age. Of gentle conversation. I will always come for you. But how can you be sure? This is true love. Oh, no. Is this a kissing book? No. Actually, there was a lot of treachery. Peril. <coughs> and revenge. 
prepared to die. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! <laughs> there were affairs of state. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. And affairs of the heart. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. I've seen worse. Bye bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. It's more than turning. What's the difference? We've got him. Think it away? It would take a miracle. Bye bye. It's a story of love, a tale of adventure. It's as real as the feelings you feel. I'm kissing again. Someday you may not mind so much. The Princess Bride. Not just your basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, ho-hum fairy tale. Princess Bride, Andy. Princess Bride. Okay, how many times have you seen it? Do you still count? A bazillion. And one. Because this was my, my bazillion and one. This was the one. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> So I, I, the, <laughs> I was struggling a little bit with how to talk about the movie other than just gushing over it uh, because it is gush worthy. H- I mean, how did it hit you this watch in the context of talking about it for the movie, for, for the show? This movie really is like such a huge place in my heart and my life. I just I, I love it. I have, you know, my dear friend Amy, she and I have quoted it ever since we met each other in college. To the point where now it's like we have like mocking, we're even mocking the the quotes that we'd say when we quote it back and forth to each other. So it's very funny. Um, it was hard to figure out how to approach this. I, I suppose as I was watching it, I was just looking for, uh, trying to look for things that I hadn't really caught or paid attention to before. Like the first thing that struck me that I, I don't know if I've actually caught onto before or noticed was that it's kind of a Christmas movie. Like, it's a Christmas movie. And it's like, the first minute. thing I noticed too. <laughs> I see the big window outside mom. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's snow on the ground. There's lights on everybody's houses. And then I didn't, I don't know if I've ever noticed that when grandpa comes, it's wrapped in Christmas paper with Santa Claus. I'm like, and there's a Santa Claus on his this closet. Like, it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> Never in a bazillion years have I noticed that. It's, uh, Sophie and I were watching the movie together. We both sort of sat up. We were like, oh, my God, it's Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> it is the diehard of family movies. Should this count in the scope of Christmas movies? Does it count as a Christmas movie? I don't I mean, know. It is Man, about I... grandpa giving, giving a wonderful gift to his grandson. I know. It is. The whole thing is wrapped around a gift. Yeah. I love it. I think it's great. There might be something with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uninten- like, even if we call it unintentional Christmas movies. Yeah, like exactly. You know, accidental, maybe Christmas movies. Yeah, very much. I think it's I think it's fantastic. I, I that was that was I was gobsmacked be- because of that. The stuff I'd never noticed. That was a big one. How funny that both of us caught that. I know. On this watch. <laughs> I also the baby faces can we just say carrie always and and robin wright like they looked like they just were able to finally start drinking <laughs> like they looked like <laughs> little babies and that's like british drinking like they just turned 18 like they yeah. look so small it's so, so funny. small 
I know. That's really true. Fred Savage, r- really funny that Fred Savage is, I, every time I see Fred Savage and just think about like what he's gone on to do and direct and, um, you know, that he is, that he's, he really hasn't aged, just grown larger. <laughs> like he's, I think he's one of those guys. He's just grown in size, but not age. He looks exactly like he did sitting in bed on a sick day. Well, and to the point where when the movie started, I instantly now thought of uh, the Deadpool 2, Once Upon a Deadpool version, yeah. where he kidnapped uh, Fred Savage, tied him to the bed, <laughs> and is reading him the story. I'm like, okay, it's it's all become part of the joke now, which is It's all fantastic. part of the joke. Yeah. yeah. Um, can we talk about the book? Yeah, let's talk about the book. Have you read the book? I have read the book. Let's talk about the book. I read the book uh, after I saw the movie. I didn't know it was a book first. William Goldman, um, he wrote it in such an interesting way where he wrote it as if you know his grandfather had given him this book and like had told him the story, had read it to him. And that was one of the things that I always enjoyed so much about the book, where it's like he's writing it as if he discovered this book that his grandfather had always read to him. He's now kind of retelling the story. And like his grandfather did, he's like, I didn't realize that there were these big boring parts here. And so I'm just going to, you know, skip over all of this stuff that was really boring about the histories of Gilder and Florin and whatever. And, and so he kind of writes it in a way where he's kind of streamlining the story for a younger person that he's reading it to, which I, I always enjoyed. And, and then I enjoyed the way that the filmmakers chose to kind of translate that, or he specifically, as he adapted it for for screen, like chose to create that framing device with the grandpa and grandson. It makes for a really fun way to tell the story that instantly made it feel like something that had been passed down from generations. And that's, I think, um, something really special with, with the book. For a long time, uh, when I was introduced to the book, it was obviously a reprint, you know, years later. And for a long time, I thought the book was the novelization of the movie and was written at to go along with the joke of the movie the, and had no idea of the original history of of how the thing got written and didn't really investigate. Like, it was just a fun book. And uh, I knowing it now, it feels almost like the perfect book to movie novelization, right? Adaptation. You know what I mean? Like it just lands the heart, the comedy. Um, you get the entire feeling of sitting bedside reading to a sick kiddo. It just feels so, so good. Apparently, it was hard to make. And, and uh, you know, the movie's been out for so long. That it was it was one of those that Fox apparently had the rights in the mid 70s, close to after the book was published. And then it just sat for a decade until Goldman got the rights back and went to Norman Lear, uh, who got it greenlit for production. So, yeah, like like as we're talking, the book just had its 50th anniversary. It was written it published in 73. Yeah. It's very strange to to kind of think about this because the movie has been such a part of my life. It's hard to imagine a time when someone would not choose to make it a movie immediately. I, and I love the original title, The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version, abridged <laughs> by William <laughs> Goldman. Like he even wrote it as if this was this story by uh, uh, Morgan Stern that he had found and abridged to republish. And I just think it's genius. Like that's such a genius way to approach it. But I suppose to your point, 
that is one of the things that might have made it difficult to figure out how to translate it to screen, which would have, I, I guess, as I think about it, might have made sense why it did take so long in its development, you know? Because, I mean, I mean, right away, I mean, 20th Century Fox paid him for the rights to write the screenplay in 73. Richard Lester was going to direct it. And, uh, and then, you know, luckily, I suppose, things like the head of Fox was fired so that all the projects were put on hiatus. Goldman had to buy the rights back. Other people talked to him over the years. Francois Truffaut, Robert Redford, Norman Jewison all wanted to um, make it. Christopher Reeve wanted to play Wesley. And it only was kind of the, the time it, it took for it to kind of simmer, let's just say, from 73 until the mid-80s when Rob Reiner actually, he actually got some uh, funding from Norman Lear. And was able to kind of work with Goldman to make it. And so it's just, it's, I guess, lucky that it took so long to, uh, to get into the right hands because I, 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 maybe they just could not quite figure out how to tackle exactly what it was about kind of the, in the world of book writing, I suppose it's kind of a meta storytelling, yes. you know, writing yeah. it that way, which I, the, created the framing device. It, it does make you wonder, you know, just as the, the book was considered unfilmable for a long time. Would uh, an original screenplay not uh, adapted? Would an original screenplay written just like this have been better accepted more immediately? Because the book seems so, or the 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 script itself seems like just such a natural, beautiful story with an easy framing device that works um, that that works just perfectly to bring us into the world. Yeah, the moment that I think feels the most on screen like kind of what we were getting from the in the head version of Goldman, the the um, writing the abridged version of S. Morgenstern's book, the closest that we get in the film to f that same feel for me is the moment when um, when grandpa stops for a moment in the part where uh Buttercup has jumped into the water and is trying to swim to freedom. Uh, and then you have Vicini say, you hear that, Highness? Those are the shrieking eels. And you get that whole shrieking eels part. Grandpa stops and he's like, are you okay? Do you want me to keep going? Because you look a little nervous. To to his grandson, then he starts reading again. He's at the wrong part. We're kind of seeing it as he's narrating trying to figure out where he was. And so he's kind of narrating, like catching up. Do you hear that? Shrieking eels. Yeah, yeah, We got and to the this clips part. Start and going then, faster and faster. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then we get to, and then the big punch uh, as uh, as we get Fezzik punching the shrieking eel and saving her. And it's it was such a um, kind of a, a meta way to kind of, here's a grandpa reading a story for his son. He's trying, he's forgetful. He can't remember who I was trying to figure it out, catching up. And it's all like part of the actual story. And it, it was such an interesting way. I mean, it it takes all of the the fear and the the frights out of the Shrieking Eel sequence, but in a way that is designed to kind of like fit into what how he's trying to tell the story. So it, it works really well. Well, and it's possible. I mean, those Shrieking Eels are they're not puppies like that's kind of a scary <laughs> sequence. And and I think for the for younger audiences who are coming to this ostensibly family movie right, doing things like that is, you know, the same way they do the sword hits. Right. The clearly 
the the characters are getting punctured, but you don't see it. They get poked and then cut away. And when we cut back, there's a blood stain on their outfits. Right. That's just how they do the the cuts. And so it's all this is making that break in what is possibly the most sort of monster, mysterious, threatening sequence in the film, right? Even the R-O-U-S's are not as scary as the Shrieking Eels could be in in a kind of Tim Burton way. That's a great way to break the intensity of the sequence for young viewers. I think it's, I, I think it's really, it just feels super intentional and natural and, and uh, allows for an immediate rescue after popping the balloon a little bit. Yeah, and it allows any kid in the audience to, you kind of feel like they're in the grandson's shoes being taken care of by this storyteller so that it's not too scary. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And it's a fun way to uh, kind of break the tension and uh, allow also for us, the older people in the audience, a little bit of comedy as we get that sequence, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So since we're talking a little bit about monsters, can we let's just talk about so the shrieking eels, they look great. Right. We should talk about the effects because, you know, this is a part of our series of the 1988 Academy Awards Best Visual Effects. It only had the two nominees, which we've already talked about, Interspace and Predator. Um, we had members vote when we were putting this series together on films to discuss, and this and Robocop came up. So there are effects in this film. Are they at the same level of those other films? Maybe not, but still, I think they do a lot to kind of create this world. We've got the Shrieking Eels. We've got the Cliffs of Insanity. We've got the R.O.U.S.'s, Rodents of Unusual Size, and, uh, you know, just other sorts of effects that we're getting, setting a person on fire, uh, giant smashing boulders on a mountain, things like that. The Shrieking Eels looked good, but were clearly, I mean, they were they were not to the level of the effects of some of the other uh, films. They were scary, but like I said, I just couldn't stop thinking Tim Burton. And the RUS is, this was the fun, <laughs> our funny break. But I don't think my kids have seen this movie in a very long time, and they were sitting watching with me, and the RUS has come out, and my, my daughter looks up and says, oh, that's totally a dude in a suit. <laughs> As if the veil was lifted after many years. <laughs> you know, they get so used to to CG effects and, and you know, uh, these fictional creatures being exuberant uses of technology. And when you see a dude in a suit take off the rose-colored glasses, uh, I thought that was very funny. And yet, you know, still works for this kind of storybook movie. Yeah, for something that is very much a fairy tale, I think there is this level of uh, you buy into kind of the magic that they're creating here, even if it never quite looks exactly real you know the shrieking eels the rodents of unusual size even the cliffs like i i always marvel that you can kind of see the the wire that's guiding them as they're as they're pulled up that you know i i guess the technology wasn't there to really remove it they probably just shot wide enough to uh, make it as invisible as hopefully possible but it still is always kind of there um but like that sort of effect that they they came up with, how can we pull this up? Okay, we're going to rig a system to kind of pull this um, these people up here, and it's just it's kind of always fun to see what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, and I never I never worry about it. That's one of the things about this movie that's sort of un- impossible to date uh, because it is it, it's a 
it feels as much as it, from the moment the grandfather opens the book, it feels like we're seeing a a play on stage. It's like a sort of a, <laughs> I don't know, is that sequence in Bo is Afraid where they meet all the, the players on the stage and they're acting out. The, and I think that's, it's just a, a funny, a funny thing I'm thinking about. Like if you, if the camera just pulls out a little bit further, you'll see that they're all on a giant stage and they're, they're making a play, which is why the, you know, dudes in suits don't matter. And, and I don't think they'll ever matter. Like that's the gag. That's what's funny. Yeah. It just feels part of this this fictional story that Grandpa's telling, you know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It just kind of creates the magic, and so and and they have Andre the Giant, who is his own best special effect. Yeah, right. Every time his hand is next to somebody else's, any feature—head, hand, shoulder—he looks like uh, like a fake thing. His head, it, the fight on the mountain with uh, uh, Wesley, uh, when they he Wesley is on his shoulder, you could fit like four, I don't know, four and a half Wesley heads inside of an Andre the Giant head. That is an extraordinary head. He he was he was majestic. That guy, like incredible, incredible. Truly, the poor guy, you know, he obviously with his size, he always had health issues through his life. His wrestling career, I'm sure, exacerbated a lot of those issues that he had. Um, he had just had back surgery before they shot. He couldn't even hold the weight of Elwes when they were filming or right when he picks her up at the end of the film. So below the that scene that you were just talking about, Carrie Elwes has a series of ramps below the frame that he's actually walking on. So so Andre doesn't have to support his weight. And at the end with Robin Wright, she's suspended by cables as he it's as it looks like he's carrying her. So again, just kind of creating the magic, but I, I think he works so well. And, you know, for such a big actor, he was terrified of actually jumping into a film. You know, he was a French wrestler and he, the whole thing was in English and that kind of scared him a little bit, but he said, you know, I mean, everybody was so kind to him on set. They were also uh, friendly and just absolutely made him feel like he was just one of the team. And so I think it was a very special thing for him as well. Died at 46. He was right around 39, 40 when he did this movie. And ugh, it you, knowing that, that he was struggling and with the surgery, it's hard. It's almost harder to watch the movie because you can kind of see it when he's just walking, how hard it is to walk. Like I sort of, I can feel the the pain in his back and knees. Yeah, and it's tricky because, like, you know, just having back surgery, already having pain and issues with, you know, just being the size he is, and then saying, okay, you're going to be carrying, uh, you know, three other people in one scene. You're going to be wrestling a guy. You're going to be, you know, uh, catching this woman who jumps off of a tower, like all of these different things. Like, I can imagine that it was a, lo a big ask, but, uh, you know, I just feel like he was really glad to be a part of it. Yeah. Can you imagine, could you have imagined Arnold Schwarzenegger in the role? Uh, no, I can't, especially after just watching Predator. <laughs> Same year, right? It would have been very weird. It was uh, William Goldman's second choice if they couldn't get Andre the Giant. But uh, because at the, at the time in the 70s when he was trying to get this film made, um, he was pretty unknown. And so he thought he'd be good. But uh, of course, by the time the film did get made, he was way too big a star and they couldn't actually afford him. I just can't even imagine <laughs> that would that just what a weird yeah what a weird choice. The other options were Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Ferrigno, and Carol Stroykin. Um So I, 
I'm really glad they got Andre the Giant. Yeah, Andre the Giant fits the fits the fantasy best. Yeah, as does Mandy Patinkin. Uh, Mandy yes, Patinkin yes. is extraordinarily good in this movie, and I think this is what's what is great about it is the thing that connected to him is that it's a story of of vengeance. He really really connected to the story of vengeance of Inigo Montoya, and you know maybe the fact that he was making a family film that would last for generations for children uh, secondarily. Mostly, he wanted to kill guys. That's what I gather from Mandy Patinkin, and that feels on brand to me. That's my head canon of Mandy Patinkin. Um, that, that, that's what he's known for. It's why he, why he did Dick Tracy. It's all the vengeance. Had you seen him before? I, I mean, he, he had been acting obviously before this film, but I think this was the first time I had seen him. Like, I know my mom had rented Yentl and watched it at home, but I don't, I wasn't watching Yentl with her, uh, at the time. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I had, but it's really hard to say. I might be he- headcanoning that because, you know, he did. He he was in Sunday in the Park with George, which was a big favorite around our house, more than Yentl. But that came out in 86. And it's possible I saw that shortly after. That was a theater. Did they have Was that a recording already? Before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. And uh, I just think that it's possible I might be retconning that. And and so maybe, yeah, Inigo Montoya is my first experience with Mandy Patinkin. But man, it doesn't take long uh, for him to just start showing up everywhere. And when he was in Dick Tracy, I do remember, like, I, I mean, I, I immediately came home and started learning What Can You Lose on the piano. I was singing duets of that with my Broadway nerd friends. Like, he, he uh, was just fantastic. And that's when I sort of rediscover, oh my gosh, Mandy Patinkin is a multiple talent threat. Like, he's incredible. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then huge fan of Homeland and his role in the first seasons of Homeland. I, I haven't seen the entire series. I need to catch up on it, but I just I, I thought his his performance was fantastic. So, yeah, this was the first thing I saw him in. And then Alien Nation the very next year, which I also really enjoyed. Oh, that would have been it, too. Yeah. Alien yeah. Nation. Uh, Dick Tracy, the doctor. And then I feel like film wise i i just don't feel like he's done much in the world of film i think so much of his career has been focused on like tv and theater and that's kind of where i generally think of him but i do always enjoy him and just i mean seriously inigo montoya is just kind of has become one of the classic film characters and his you know my name is inigo montoya you killed my father or prepare to die like that whole bit is just I don't know. There's something that's kind of become iconic with that and the way that he keeps he keeps repeating it. I love when he finally, finally finds Count Rugen and just keeps saying that. And, you know, it's just it's it plays so well and it just it works so well with that character and you know, his desire for vengeance to avenge his father. So. So, you know, uh, they they say outright that every time Wesley says, as you wish, he's saying, I love you. And I get the same vibe from my name is Inigo Montoya, because during that last sword fight, which is fantastic, he keeps saying it. And it feels like every time he's saying the line, it's conveying a different sentiment. You know, I, I think it takes a special performer to be able to pull that off. It's like, the, you know what it's like? It's like that scene in The Wire 
where the detectives go into the apartment. It's like that. I, I can't remember. It's like four or five minute sequence when they just say the F word in different tones. It's perfect. Yep. It, it is a perfect. It's a perfect sequence. And that's, I, I think, what you get when you have a, the caliber of performer of Mandy Patinkin delivering a line repeatedly like this and being able to imbue that line with something interesting every time that might not be the same. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's great. He's so good. And Christopher Guest as Count Rugen is is great opposite that because he doesn't get it. He's just like, stop saying that. He's just Christopher so... Guest is in a different movie sometimes. <laughs> He's so good. He's so good. And also, I feel like he might be thinking, is this a mockumentary that we're doing right now? Is this a joke? Well, he certainly uh, brings the that that same uh, spinal tap comedy, you know, that he that he had uh, that same energy here. And it's just so funny, like. Everything that he does when he is in the uh, the pit of despair, as, he's, as he has Wesley st- strapped to this nonsensical machine, it's just, I mean, it's just so much fun. And just, uh, he clearly, <laughs> he's like, I don't know, the way that he says his lines, uh, you know, just, I mean, he clearly is having fun in in the joy of being such a, a quietly evil character. Get some rest if you haven't got your health. You haven't got anything. <laughs> it's, he's healing him. It's so good. It's so good. So so good. Uh, we were we we're talking about the uh, the the three uh, kidnappers. We we didn't really jump into Wallace Shawn much as Vicini, but he's kind of the head of the group and the the most diminutive of the group, um, and it, the, clearly the smartest of the group. <laughs> what do you think of Wallace Shawn here? We uh, we've only talked about him. Have we talked about him much in other than um, Dinner with Andre? The uh, Dinner with Andre. Um, he was briefly in Atlantic City, but uh, to the point where it's not even worth mentioning him really. Uh, but I feel like that might be it. Oh, he was he was also in all that jazz briefly. Did you ever go back and see? I mean, I just think Wallace Shawn is is a fantastic talent. And uh, did you ever go back and watch Vanya? I think you did. No. I think I saw a letterbox review come through. You didn't. Ugh. I know. I need to. I absolutely need. To. I promised myself I am going to watch it before I watch Drive My Car again. I really want to make sure I've got my head around that story before I do. It. Oh, he was of course the teacher in Clueless. I forgot we we talked about that one too. Oh my God, you're so right. We did talk about that. Good catch. Uh, I, I think he's just fantastic. And so the thing that that while Sean brings to the to the story is that he he's obviously the smartest, but then obviously maybe not. Right. It's the whole idea that he's he is this little Napoleon complex guy who um, happens to sometimes be the smartest guy in the room, but only kind of accidentally. And that, you know, when you finally get him talking about outsmarting the man in black, uh, you, you get to see that he's just, he's high on his own supply, that it's just, got, it's completely gone to his head. And that, and the way he talks himself into drinking which cup that he is drinking and the, it, it ends on a, ga- a cup switching gag is just sort of the perfect punctuation to his entire identity, that he's, he's just a bully who doesn't quite know much. And Wallace Shawn brings such comedy to it that it's a, it's a legendary character it ends up being a legendary character he is perfect in the role and it, you know i i think the uh the thing about him being smart I, like i think he is perhaps the smartest character in the film but it really is his ego that uh, kind of brings him down and and the the fact that he almost his ego is bigger than his smarts so the fact that he 
sees himself as being so clever to see through this ruse that the man in black is trying to pull. Um, I, I think that's kind of his his downfall, which uh, it, you know still is one of my favorite sequences is the battle of wits when we have the two of them there and then <laughs> that whole debate that he has and i think i think uh the man in black's line truly your your intellect your, your dizzying intellect is dizzying <laughs> yeah i think that <laughs> perfectly defines that sequence which is great so so wait a minute you say he's perhaps the smartest character in the film and yet he is bested by the man in black because i i think he's he's smart but i think his ego is too big like bigger than his smarts. And I think he, in that particular moment is relying on his ego of being so smart, uh, to the point where he's, you know, he's bested. And I think that's what gets him. I contend that the man in black is the smartest man in the room because the smartest, because he was the one who he completely plays Vicini, right? He completely plays him from the beginning. Vicini doesn't get the fact that it's the man in black who provides the iocane powder like he like wouldn't the smartest guy in the room have seen that's a a, it starts as an unfair fight (laughs) that's very true very true yeah i i I suppose we can we can say that there is this level that thinking outside of the box like there's a level of smarts and there's a level of like the wisdom of thinking outside of the box and this is a situation where uh, Vicini absolutely never thinks out of the box in this particular moment. The fact that a person could have been slowly taking Iocane powder to build up a resistance to it, like that didn't even cross his mind. Never enters his yeah, mind. Which is yeah. a downfall. I, I think you hit it, hit it, though. The way Sean plays the ego in this character is, is really smart and funny, and it is a great foil for. Wesley, who is just kindness the entire time he's fighting with skill, he's fighting the brawn, and then he comes to the Battle of Wits, and all he is is humility and kindness, and he wins every time. And I think that takes us back to, you know, the bedside reading of a children's tale, of this fairy tale. What is, like, Wesley ends up being the vessel for the lesson of how to live in the world and how to treat those who may not treat you well and uh, and and how to be a gentleman. And I think that actually makes the movie that's yet another thing, another data point toward the movie being undateable. Like, it's, it is a timeless film uh, because we have such kind of obvious lessons that are perfectly delivered. And, uh, and you know, it, it feels like a timeless fairy tale. Okay, well then, to that end, uh, when uh, Vicini is finally bested, and, you know, the man in black, who Buttercup assumes is the Dread Pirate Roberts, who actually is the Dread Pirate Roberts because of this whole story that we get, uh, he isn't overly kind to her, right? And that's an interesting element with her where right he's playing up the idea of being a pirate without revealing to her the fact that it is actually wesley and so this is a moment where he he does find himself needing to kind of put on the pirate act with her in order to not reveal and to kind of draw information out from her about the idea that she is this princess bride uh, who is, has been chosen by prince humperdinck to wed be his bride and much to her chagrin, she doesn't want it, but it really is a conversation designed for him to pull information out of her. And But it is it is kind of interesting 
in what you were just saying, it really like he is forced in that particular situation to play opposite. That is a weird choice that he makes, right? A little bit yeah, that he yeah. ends up being kind of bad cop after being good cop three straight times <laughs> to these bad guys. And then to her, he picks that time not to just take off his mask and hear the whole story. But it, that's the that's the game of the fairy tale. And it also gives us the fantastic reveal when, you know, after he I have to imagine at this point, at least my sort of read of it is by the time she pushes him, he feels he has enough information to believe that her heart is true and that she's been played too and gets to scream as you wish as she falls as he falls down the cliffside and we get practically monty python-esque falling down the cliffside but she just swan dives off the off the cliff and starts rolling (laughs) down the the green hill it just keeps cutting back and forth between them hysterically funny and if you pause it at just the right place you can see the beard on the dude playing her stunt person so I think that actually works and it, it plays for me. But you're right. Like in terms of an example of his general kindness and humility, he's not very nice to her. He's also not nice at all to the bad guys, the uh, Humperdinck and and uh, Rugen and their ilk, but still a gentleman. It's interesting because he does kind of continue the relationship between Wesley and Buttercup once he reveals once she figures out, oh, my sweet Wesley and and uh, they both roll down to the bottom of the hill and they run into the fire swamp. He does kind of continue this air with her that she kind of questions throughout that scene, you know, like he's he's playing it up like they're more OK than perhaps they really are to the point where she's kind of looking at him like, huh, like I. I wonder if you are as safe to be with as you're making yourself out to be, you know, as they kind of walk through there. And that's that's an interesting element that we have there that I I don't know. I, I suppose it's an interesting way to kind of portray them coming together after five years. It had been a time now trying to kind of reconnect and and rekindle their relationship while they're on the run through this incredibly dangerous place. Right. You're right, because he goes from being really kind of a dick at first to love bombing her. Right. Like he's he's just kind of he he unleashes on her in a way that's a little bit hyperbolic, telling the whole story. And then, like, you know, suavely saving her from the fire uh, that spits up from the ground and rolling around with her to save her from the, you know, all of the various things and diving into the to the lightning sand to rescue her. And and uh, it it's. It's a weird little uh, roller coaster of a relationship they have for about 10 minutes. And it really isn't until they've both had to kind of confront death in the lightning sand. As she falls in, he dives after her. They come out with that gasping breath. That is finally the moment where Buttercup and Wesley are able to actually reconnect. And they are, they put down their pretenses, or he puts down his pretenses, and they are able to acknowledge each other and like reconnect. And that's, I think, that final moment that we have there between the two of them which is which is great and then of course it it all spins on its head because they finally make it out and of course prince humperdinck count rugen and all of their soldiers are waiting for them and wesley is ready to die for them or flee into the fire swamp where they could live and uh buttercup you know says you know basically take him as long as you don't hurt him and that's kind of the twist that nobody saw coming which is a surprise until you you hear her reasoning when she says to him, you know, I've I thought I lost you once, I can't do it again. And 
uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting shift that kind of pushes us into the next act of the film. Can I can I take a step back that because I forgot to mention something uh, in the fire swamp that it was new to me. Another like Christmas. This is a Christmas movie. It's another thing I've never noticed when they come out of the lightning sand and he stands up. She is talking about how the R.O.U.S.s are. Uh, what about the R.U.S.s? He says, oh, I think they're a myth, whatever his line is, while he is looking at two R.O.U.S.s. I never noticed the R.O.U.S.s were in the frame. Oh, I did. I had never seen that he knew the R.U.S.s were there before they that one jumps on him later. Yeah, yeah, it's um, totally new to me. Yeah. So in that regard to their relationship, like he is he's lying to her directly when he says they're a myth because he sees them right there in front of him. He's just banking. He, they are walk. They can stroll gently away. <laughs> that's what they do. They stroll gently away. So anyway, meanwhile, back to the pushing us into the next act. They meet Count Rugen and they have one of the great uh, exchanges. You know, um, lies do not befit befit gentlemen. And then uh, Rugen hits him on the head with the butt of his sword. And I believe that was a real sword and caused some injury. I don't believe that was a rubber hilt that he hits him on the head with that that is i think one of the one of the Whoops. stories that he that uh, wesley tells later yeah. harry elwes and which you know kind of takes us into this next act where he's going to get tortured and eventually killed and this is you know we have inigo and fezzik who are going to be on the search for him and you know find him once he's dead um but is this whole idea of attaching him to this insane, insane machine that is, uh, you know, he puts on the highest set or the Humperdinck comes in and puts on its highest setting, which uh, does seem to kill him. And, uh, you know, it's in the scope of the story and the fact of what we're trying to build is this true love between Buttercup uh, and Wesley and how Humperdinck can't handle that in the scope of kind of what we're portraying of leaders and stuff like that. This is an interesting moment where we have this, this prince here with, you know, a father who's not really with it. When we see the King, he's fairly out of it, um, which is kind of funny, but Humperdinck doesn't care at all about anything in Buttercup's life, except he cannot handle it. In fact, he was planning on killing her. Like that was his whole intention. Yeah. Like he had them yeah. kidnap her to so that end. he could right kind of create this war but he cannot handle the fact that there is this love between the two of them and that kind of pushes him to kill wesley and you know it's it's very interesting like the 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 portrayal of you know this this weak cowardly leader who can't handle the fact that this person that he essentially is forcing into uh you know life with him as his wife uh might be interested in somebody else and it's uh, i think chris sarandon (laughs) is such a delight in this film i mean yeah it's a great era for him anyway fright night still is one of my favorites Favorites. and here as prince humperdinck i mean just he is so perfect he's he's perfect he has that there there's a there's a type right he he fits that type he's kind of like that era's chris randon peter gallagher like there are just these guys that, that exude that kind of cowardly confidence and uh, and and he he makes it work. There there's also the sort of maniacal, uh, evil aesthetic of leadership of royalty that I think is interesting on play here. That like just thinking about what is the message that that he's trying to that that Goldman is trying to get across here about what 
the links to which leaders will go to get what they want, right, in the authoritarian state and still be so smug and proud of themselves for doing it, right? Maybe you'll think she's not so common anymore, right? Like, that's supposed to make the commoners feel good <laughs> there, that he calls them and thinks of them as common and uh, that it's such a gift. Like, I, I think he has an ideology in this movie that that plays for a, a family movie for kids and, and is telling a story that we were kind of watching play out right now in the world. Well, it's exactly what we were discussing in our conversation about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, yes. about how you have these storytellers who are telling a fairly fantastical story. And same thing here where... Clearly, I think that Goldman and in turn Reiner and uh, Chris Sarandon all had kind of a an approach that they were taking with royalty in this uh, in this particular story. And I think it comes through pretty clear that they there's a certain angle that they're including that outside of the film, the story itself, there they likely have a few thoughts about uh, about the kind of the system of royalty to begin with. Yeah. And and it falls apart at the end of the movie at, at fairly easily. Right. Because the well, first of all, the bit of comedy after them, I don't know how much you want to get into Miracle Max. Great sequence. Billy Crystal, Carol Kane. They're fantastic. The makeup holds up truly like so I good. It, yeah. so good. Uh, you know, have fun storming the castle. The whole the whole gambit falls apart because they find the what is it? The Holocaust cloak. Is that what they called it? The, yeah. Uh, yeah. And they light it on fire and roll the, Fezic, roll the, yeah. the flaming Fezzik into the castle and everybody leaves. Right. Loyalty is just so frail in this uh, in this world of Humperdinks. And, and I think that's the that's the big message. Like, you know, loyalty and humility wins the day and we get to watch it fall apart in the castle as they as as they reveal the ultimate truths and uh, you know to do so comically is is genius well and to the point where at the end of the film i mean the king has died and so now uh, it's king humperdinck but what's so interesting is in the final confrontation that we have between wesley and and humperdinck he doesn't kill him he reveals him as a coward and uh in just i mean one of my favorite sequences the whole drop your sword have a seat you know time up you know like that whole thing is just so perfect and reveals exactly how uh, much of a coward humperdinck really is and then he doesn't kill him and to think that Humperdinck will continue ruling, but will always have that, always know that he was outed as a coward in that particular moment, whether his commoner you know, people actually know that or not, I think there is a really interesting element that likely will plague him. And I just I find that to be such an interesting element with this story that he doesn't get killed. He gets revealed and then has to live with that for the rest of his life. Well, and we get such a perfect expression of hindsight bias if we've ever seen one when he's when Humperdinck sits down in the chair after being really told off and chooses to sit down out of fear and then finds out, oh, he's been mostly dead all day. He doesn't have any energy. And Humperdinck <laughs> says, I knew it. I knew he was bluffing. <laughs> I knew he was bluffing. <laughs> So good. It's such a fast joke, too. Like, he says it, really, and he's placed in the chair, like, kind of side of frame. And if you're not listening, <laughs> the, hearing him yell, I knew he was bluffing, is 
is it could slide right by, but it's really perfect. Yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect. They then, yeah, everything's fine. We have the big final sword off with Rugen and Inigo Montoya. It's a fantastic standoff. And uh, I think being able to play the... It, the throbbing nature of adrenaline and rage is what Mandy Patinkin does so well in the sequence. Like as he's weak and weak and weak, and then he stands up and he has a lot of energy, and then he's weak and weak and weak, and then he finally uh, deals the the blow, and then runs. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great sequence. Also, the the fight that he has with Rugen there, um, because it's scripted so well. Like when he's fi- having that final moment and he's He's gained his energy back and he's he's really taking on Rugen and he's, you know, offer me money, offer me uh, anything I want and more, you know, and, and like all of that and um, to that final blow. But it also pairs so perfectly with uh, Mark Knopfler's score there, which the way that he hits the notes with and, you know, people have thoughts about film music and, it, you know, is it too on the nose? Is it is it hitting the moments too hard is it allowing it to you know i i there's all sorts of film music and it works in all sorts of different films and some people like it and some people don't i think mark knopfler's score here is perfect and the way that he has those notes hit hard as the sword hits you know it's like it it ties so perfectly and it builds that energy in that sequence brilliantly to the point point where he finds like i want my father back you son of a bitch and yeah it's like perfect perfect moment in a film just i mean i i absolutely that is like one of the most satisfying conclusions to a revenge story that i've seen on film oh it's so good i you know your your point on the score is is right on and it always breaks my brain how film scoring you know when when they're really good at timing works because making the score hit the way it does and having the sword clashes not throw the the overall meter of the sequence off is alchemy. It I can't I can't wrap my head around <laughs> around what it takes to be able to do that and for the actors to perform in roughly a meter, right? To to be able to perform in a way that actually is going to give Knopfler something to line up to. I mean, that's just it's extraordinary. And I, you know, it makes me think about Baby Driver, right? Where where entire sequences are choreographed to music, but they manage it by putting lobs in their ears, like putting bugs in their ears to be able to hear the soundtrack that they're acting to. It's a, it's such a feat and that sequence in this movie really stands out to me too. Which, obviously, they weren't doing at this particular point in time. No. But, I mean, I I think you're right. It's just like figuring out how we're going to put this together in the performance, and then how can we cut it in the editing to make sure that we're doing that. And then when we do this, it's on the scoring stage, and Knopfler or whoever was conducting was making sure that they had those hits timed perfectly. I mean, it's just, it's a lot of work to make it come through, but it absolutely does here. And, you know, Reiner... Um, really wanted Knopfler to come on and, and score this. And it is a, um, I mean, what a choice. Cause I, I, I feel like that there are a lot of different types of composers that could have come on to do this, but the fact that Reiner brought Knopfler on who, I mean, we talked a little bit uh, in a movies we like episode talking about local hero. And I mean, just, I think there is something that, um, we've seen this with a number of different Compose, film composers who started in in music groups and of course you know Knopfler's in Dire Straits 
the way that they shift from that world to the world of film composing, I I, th- I sometimes find kind of a marvel because in my head, I feel like there's such a, a bifurcation between people who who write like rock songs and and perform and then shift and do this. And, and I, it, I suppose it all makes sense. I mean, why not? It's just music and it's a different way to put it together. But sometimes it just breaks my brain that, you know, the Dire Straits guy also is the guy composing this. And it sounds like it it has such a fairy tale element to it. And it's like, God, it's just, it, it's amazing that he he crafted a score that feels so perfect for the for what he's delivering here. I think about every time I hear, a, uh, you know, I, what's his name? Oingo Boingo, right? Every yeah, time, Danny because Elfman, yeah. Danny Elfman, every time I hear a Danny Elfman score, I, I think, okay, really? It's still the Dead Man's Party guy. It's still yeah, him doing right. this. It's amazing. Yeah. I know. Um, it's so funny. Yeah. So, so funny. Anything else on the hot list? Well, we haven't talked about Reiner a whole lot. This, you know, we've we've covered Stand By Me on the show before in one of our Stephen King series. And we talked about when Harry met Sally, which is one of our first holiday movies. Talk about that for, for new year's. Of course, we talked about misery another Stephen King one. And I, I feel like as a filmmaker, Rob Reiner, after misery, he does a few good men North, which uh, not many people care for. And then the American president, which is great. And then I feel like that was it. Like everything else he's made, like either I, I saw and really didn't like, or had no interest in. And I feel like there's this period in the mid eighties to the mid nineties, where I feel like Reiner was really tapped into something that was incredible. And I just feel like he's never been able to get it back. But um, man, I tell you, Ow, this ouch. film, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, did you want, did you go see like the magic of Belle Isle or, you know, his LBJ? No, man, you just said the quiet part out loud. That's all. Like, <laughs> I just, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying you're the one who said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I mean, maybe some of them are actually great movies. It's just when yeah. I've, when I've seen the trailers and everything, I'm like, I just don't know. I just don't know if I need to bother with that one. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Pretty much after ghosts of mississippi i don't think i saw a single thing in the theater like i didn't see uh, rumor has it i didn't see the bucket list i didn't see flipped or eight i didn't see anything that was released in the theater lbj and that was just 2017 shock and awe nope so yeah i mean i i i'm exactly with you i i feel like there is such a um, swing, but here he has, you know, uh, this is Spinal Tap 2 coming sequel to Spinal Tap. Is that not a real thing? I don't know, but I'm just, I don't want that to be a thing. <laughs> like, why, why, why let let it be? This he's got Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, Harry Shear, uh, Rob Reiner is still around it, but with Paul McCartney, Elton John, and Garth Brooks signed on, supposedly. So, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know. know. I am concerned that they're talking about that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But he, I mean, he has a real effortless sense of directing comedy and fantasy and grounding fantasy. The film, the, the thing is shot really straight across the bow. Like there is, this is a, a grounded conventional shoot. There's nothing that the camera's doing that feels like it's, it's taking me out of the film at all. Right. It feels like it's just like, let's let the, let's let the movie be a movie. And, um, 
you know, maybe of the era, maybe of his style. It just it, it doesn't feel particularly uh, like it's trying to be particularly innovative uh, on the on the filmmaking side, just letting the story be the thing that that moves it forward. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Adrian Biddle was on as the cinematographer here who he hadn't worked with before. It's actually early in Biddle's career. I mean, he'd only done Aliens before this. And but then he'd go on to do Willow afterwards. So clearly kind of stuck with kind of the the fantastical and stuff like that. But and then Reiner would go on to his next two films uh, working with Barry Sonnenfeld. And that was a pairing. I thought I, I thought those two films that they did together were exceptional. Like they they found a beautiful way to tell both of those stories. And, you know, I think Biddle's fine here. I, I, I think that it is they're doing everything they need to. And they're shooting in, geez, gorgeous places in England and Ireland to kind of fill the frame and give us something that just feels um, beautiful and magical. And I, I think that they're really capturing something that feels very much like a fairy tale. Yeah, for sure. It's beautiful. An immensely quotable fairy tale. That is the, the other thing. It's not just a fairy tale, but I think, and this is the essence of what Reiner manages to do here with the script is like capture this real sense of true love. Like I, I buy it. Like from the moment that Buttercup I mean, Robin Wright and Carrie Elwes, when they first look into each other's eyes at the beginning of this film, like it's palpable, like it's it's mm-hmm. crazy how much it works here. And the as you wish, the fact that it's I mean, it feels like such a part of this movie, but it feels like as you wish has become just something that is synonymous with I love you because it because they defined that here. Yeah, absolutely. And we should say of, of it, it's almost hard to come back to Robin Wright and Carrie Elwes. Ariel was uh, because they're they're sort of the straight characters in a movie full of characters that are all so quotable and also over the top. But they're really good as our our fair couple and super believable there, as you say, their romance. And Robin Wright is uh, I mean, she's just she's porcelain perfection in this movie. Like she's just perfect in this movie as as this iconic princess. Right. Like emphasis on the right syllable. She's a princess. And uh, and and I think she just I think she works. It's it's hard. It, it's hard to imagine this this romance not happening from the moment he says the first, you know, when she says, uh, uh, fetch me that that jug. And he walks right over to her and gets the jug. Their relationship is inevitable. And that's what we count on for the fairy tale to to work like this. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great movie. Love it. Oh, it's so good. Uh, oh, the the last thing I noticed, the last this was the third thing that I noticed for the first time, uh, which is the uh, marriage, you know, Peter Cook, mm-hmm, incredible yeah. performance by so Peter funny. Cook. I always just called him, you know, the priest. But his title, uh, as he is credited in the movie, is the impressive clergyman, which I think is <laughs> a lovely, subtle joke because he's neither impressive <laughs> Uh, nor <laughs> he's terribly believably a clergyman, uh, uh, though he wears the garb perfectly. Peter Cook's great. He is great. Yeah, very fun. All right. Well, that is it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Francesco D'Andrea, Oriol Novella, and Eli Catlin. 
And he usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxoffice, mojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right, Andy, what sequels and remakes? Is that even possible? Believe it or not, um, there have been discussions. Uh, you know, and first of all, I mean, just the legacy of this, the fact that this movie has lasted so long has really kind of pushed for, uh, pushed it in the direction where people keep talking about it, but also pushed people who talk about it or pu- push people who don't want it to happen to really negate those people who even bring it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the scope of of other versions of it, I suppose we start with you know Jason Reitman doing the live dramatic reading of the script. Um, this was in 2011. I think this might have been the start of him doing a lot of those sorts of things, where he actually cast it with people like Paul Rudd played Wesley, Mindy Kaling played Buttercup, and on and on. In the the uh, the Congress, a film that Steve and JJ talked about over on Trailer Rewind, uh, Robin writes the lead, and they reference the movie they don't it's not you know tied in or out but because of kind of the meta nature of that story it is brought up in that the deadpool 2 reference we already talked about a little bit there is a bar named as you wish in chicago that features a bunch of themed cocktails there was uh several attempts at creating a stage musical version of it that has never quite happened there was a virtual reality social game, Rec Room, that actually involved the uh, the production of it. There have been several board games of it. Um, there, Notoriously, there was a Quibi version of it, home movie The Princess Bride, that Jason Reitman produced during COVID, where uh, different people would create recreate scenes 
from home in order to raise money. That was, I think, perhaps the only successful thing that was on Quibi. <laughs> I know that was one that yeah, right. a lot of people talked about it. Quibi Corner. And then, again, there was another read-through of it more recently, a kind of a Princess Bride reunion, which uh, I, I think was um, kind of cool because, as I recall, it was uh, um, Fred Savage who actually came in to play who did he play didn't he play i don't know i thought he played the grandfather but it was rob reiner who played the grandfather so um i'm not exactly sure i thought he came back to play something but um and then of course as i said people keep talking about a, a remake or another version of it or a sequel or things and everybody in social media immediately puts it down saying don't you dare touch this one and I think that's kind of where we're left, where people, it has so many fans that people just don't even want them to approach it. They want to keep this as it is, which, you know, I think in the world of cinema is kind of rare when when fans uh, are able to kind of keep the studios from actually mucking something up. That's such a weird role for fans <laughs> <laughs> to play the good guys. How well, weird. I know. I know, right? <laughs> you Very go, funny. fans. Like, remember this. <laughs> this is how it should be felt. <laughs> exactly. So uh, funny. All right. So uh, we're here to talk about awards. How did this one do at awards season? It had seven wins with 10 other nominations. It did not get a visual effects nomination at the Oscars. We've talked about that. But it did get nominated for Best Music, Original Song, uh, for Willie DeVille's song, Storybook Love, but lost to a little tune called i've had the time of my life from a little film called dirty dancing you know in the scope of things i guess i call that a fair win <laughs> you know <laughs> makes sense dirty you know it is a good song uh, it's it's fine <laughs> yeah. uh, the saturn awards it was nominated for four awards over there it won best fantasy film and best costumes robin wright was nominated for best actress but lost to jessica tandy and batteries not included surprise uh, and William Goldman was nominated for Best Writing, but lost to Michael Miner and Edward, New Edward Newmeyer for RoboCop. At the American Comedy Awards, uh, Billy Crystal was nominated for Funniest Supporting Male, but lost to Albert Brooks in Broadcast News. And Carol Kane was nominated for Funniest Supporting Female, but lost to Olympia Dukakis in Moonstruck. It won at the Hugo Awards, our last series. We were talking about Best Dramatic Presentation. This is the film that won the 1988 Hugo Awards for Best Dramatic Presentation. And at the WGA Awards... Goldman was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, but lost to Roxanne. Roxanne. Oh, you know what you don't have to do. I <laughs> uh, I think it's fantastic. I think it's weird. We're going to have to talk about this again. The fact that <laughs> Goldman lost to Michael Miner and Edward, Neum Edward Neumeyer for RoboCop. We're going to have to litigate this further. I saw your Letterboxd review come through for RoboCop recently. and Oh, ignore the stars. That's It was another a thing. A little surprised. No, no, no. You should, you should be. It's the exact same thing that happened last time. We were talking about that <laughs> other thing, Predator. It was three stars because I was just whipping through and I was like, oh, it's a movie. Three, three, three. But I hadn't watched it in a long time. Don't worry about the stars. Don't. I mean, we're going to. But we are going to talk about this loss. Okay. All right. All right. How did it do at the uh, Office of Boxes? Reiner had about the same amount as McTiernan did to make Predator. He had $16 million, or $42.7 in today's dollars. 
The movie opened limited September 27, 1987, then had its wide release October 9th, opposite Someone to Watch Over Me, Surrender, Baby Boom, Three O'Clock High, Man on Fire, and Chuck Berry Hail Hail Rock and Roll. It jumped to number three at the box office on its wide release and stayed in the top 20 for 11 weeks. The film went on to earn $30.9 million domestically and what surely is incomplete data, $189,000 internationally. That gives it a total gross of $82.9 million in today's dollars. All told, it lands with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $410,000. A slight success, but certainly something that has grown its fan base since its release. Andy, I'd buy that for a dollar. Uh, see, that's me just trying out one-liners from a movie with less good one-liners than this one. I was just trying it out. But that we'll is a pretty A-plus one-liner. <laughs> okay, uh, so this is the this was the story. Did you see this thing in IMDb on the trivia? I can't find the original source, but during the filming of some scenes for The Princess Bride, the weather became markedly cold for Robin Wright Penn. Andre the Giant helped her by placing one of his hands over her head. His hands were so large that one would entirely cover the top of her head, keeping her warm. Andy, we all need an Andre the Giant in our lives. <laughs> my God, I'm melting. Billy Crystal tried that in My Giant. And I don't think it worked out. <laughs> it did not play. <laughs> well, fantastic movie. I love it. So, so glad we finally talked about it. I know. And now I can stop believing that we've talked about it all along. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie. The second of our member-selected non-nominees that perhaps should have been. Third, when you include our member bonus episode, The Lost Boys. <laughs> and sadly, the last of our series, Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop. We get the best of both worlds, the fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you RoboCop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go. You are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal. Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. What is this shit? Anything you say may be used against you. A cyborg, you idiot. You recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory is admissible as evidence. You're gonna have to kill it. Get in the car, for God's sake! Robocop, the future of law enforcement. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. 
the originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. This series is so weird. It's like litigating a year of my teenagedom in a row. And I just, I'm so looking forward to watching Lost Boys. I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to ruin it. Say hello to the night, Pete. Say hello to the night. All right, Andy, Letterbox. It's time for Letterbox. Uh, You know what? This is great. This is a great movie. Screw it. It's five stars. But do we really? (laughs) We do not even need to spend any time. Absolutely five stars and a heart. None of those even had to be stolen to get here. It was just nope. straight up five stars. Uh, yeah. Solid, solid movie. Uh, remember, you can find the show at The Next Reel over on Letterboxd. You can find me at Soda Creek Film, and you can find Pete at Pete Wright. So what did you think about The Princess Bride? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Regrettably, you went to the bottom of the barrel on this movie. I can't believe you'd want to sully such a great watch by hearing other people hate on it, but you did it, so. (laughs) You know, I I went down to the bottom of the barrel just because I was curious. I'm like, what do people who really don't like this movie actually have to say? I will say, a lot of them are people who nitpick about very particular things, you know, like... Uh, a lot of people don't like like they they single out like that was a terrible bad guy or I didn't like like this person I don't like the big rat half star it's like eh, okay what yeah but uh, but Eve gave it a half star that I I don't know I I think it's funny I hate this movie I don't have anything witty to say but that guy's mustache and the awful fight scene in front of the green screen still haunts me which is funny because it's like I don't think it was in front of a green screen but Eve clearly has issues just the fact that it it looked uh it was on a stage which fight scene would be in front of a i think it's just on a stage the sword fight well the sword fight on the cliff you know in the in the ruins i think just the the backdrop was just you know it was a stage backdrop but you know that was a mat right like it was a mat on a set yeah it's just it's exactly it's just the the backdrop behind them and just the fact that it looks fake i guess eve doesn't click with the idea that a fairy tale can have that look. Oh, Andy. 
I know we're going to do with people. This is the thing. I went with a five star. I went with a five star from Cormac, who says, seven year old me, this is the best story I've ever seen. I love fairy tales. That was me at seven. 14 year old me, this is the best piss take I've ever seen. I too hate fairy tales. That was 14. 20. This is the best meta postmodern action or adventure comedy romance with a wink, wink, I've ever seen. I love fourth wall breaking. That's 20. 24. Wallace Shawn is the funniest person to exist ever and should only be treated as such. Oh my God, that's Peter Falk. Oh, and this just might be the best movie I've ever seen. I love it. It's perfect. I love movies. A lovely send-off to a less-than-lovely year. Happy New Year, folks. That was Cormac's 2021 New Year movie capping off uh, 2020. Remember what happened in 2020? Don't. Let's not. Anyway. <laughs> lovely walk through history, Cormac. Thank you. And thank you so much, Letterboxd. You're the best. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.